0: Who can name the five books of Moses in Hebrew? Come on, in Hebrew. (laughs) Nobody knew who the left-handed assassin was Wednesday. Come on, who can name the five books in Hebrew? Come on, Brandon. What you got? That's Genesis. No. No, we've we've skipped to uh, the fourth book at that point. Huh? Nobody. Wow. Nobody even has a complete Jewish Bible? Yeah.
1: Yeah. You, yeah. my brother,
0: you know, I didn't say that.
1: <laughs>
0: All right, look like I'm going to hold on to these bumper stickers a little while longer. You know, one of the things that I struggle with as a pastor often is I say, I can't tell them that. I, they already know that. And... uh the reality is that what is important to me and what sticks in my mind is not always the same. I mean, some of you guys are engineers, some of you uh, are teachers. You do all kinds of things. And so what is important to you on a daily basis and what you retain is different than what is important to me on a daily basis and what I retain. So I put in your bulletin a place you are going to be able to take some notes today. This is uh, November 13th, 2011. Our message today is called 555, five, five. that's not the 999 plan,
1: <laughs>
0: not that that's a bad idea, but it is 555. Five, five. You know, it's interesting, during this time of tribal warfare in the United States, we, uh, we, we seem to have lots of slogans and platitudes that are being thrown around. And uh, they are so trite, so ridiculous, that sometimes the people saying them cannot even remember them when it's important. I don't want our messages to become that way. The reason I put these titles on them, and very often in Hebrew, is for search terms on the internet, and so that perhaps it will strike something in your mind that you remember. But when I say Retzev from Wednesday, does anybody remember what Retzev was? Constant combat. Constant combat. We want to relate things from the culture of the Bible to the people of the Bible, and right back to our life. Five 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 is going to be... Five or three examples where there are five things in them because five is an important number in the Bible. Turn with me to Genesis 9. If you had told me this year when the year started, this year, Eric, you're going to lose the building that you guys invested $32,000 into and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, I might not have been happy about it. If you had told me that the first musical instrument that our church ever paid for that was a significant amount of money a beautiful ovation guitar would be stolen, I don't think I would be all of that happy about it. If you told me that for the second time my Bible and my computer would be stolen, I'm not sure that I would have been all that thrilled about it. If you had told me that we would see people leave the ministry, some on good terms and some on very, very bad terms, I think I was probably distraught at that time. When we considered moving people to other states, at first that looked a little bit like a negative thing. I buried my father in August of this year. Not such an easy thing. And we looked at videotape of somebody pulling out of this parking lot in the truck that I used for missions just three weeks ago. Not even three weeks ago. Those are all slightly negative things, yeah? (laughs) Yeah. And that's not. those are only the ones we can speak aloud. But then when you begin to look at what God did with them, we got a better building and the money to build it out that holds more people. We got a better guitar. If you have an ovation, you should want a tailor. I got a new Bible and a new chance to fill it with the revelation God has given me. We've seen more than 20 people saved this year and sick. I mean, it's one thing to say saved. It's another thing to say saved and still here, still growing, still doing well. We've seen revival spark in three different cities, two of which are in Arkansas, a state I had never been to prior to that. Actually, I preached there one time a long time ago. We've seen new babies born in our ministry. While we've said goodbye to friends like Zeke and Kathleen for a short time, we've said hello to friends like Charlie and Joellen. This was also my first year of full-time ministry. (laughs) But what an eventful year, and it's not over. Uh, I'm going to Mexico this week without a passport and in a rental car. That will be a good test, won't it? (laughs) I just wanted to tell you that when one kingdom pushes, the other kingdom pushes back, right? But I'm all into doing the pushing and not so into being pushed. So today, let's learn a little bit about pushing back. Are you all in Genesis 9? Yes. The most intimate, closest battle you will ever fight, the one that touches you the most, is one that occurs somewhere between your heart and your mind. In Genesis 9, let us pick up in the 26th verse. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Shem means in Hebrew, the name. Blessed be the God of the name. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth, and may Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his slave. What an interesting thing. We see three sons of Noah, and yet it is one mankind. Three sons, and yet we're speaking about all of mankind when we speak about these three boys. This is not all that unlike so many things that are said about God. I have heard many times descriptors of the Godhead. People are fond of speaking of three parts and yet one. I'd like to tell you that Romans 3.30 says, There is only one God. 1 Corinthians 8.6 says, Yet for us there is but one God, one Father. Ephesians 4.5 says, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. 1 Timothy 2.5 There is one God, one mediator. The cry of Israel every day when they woke up was Deuteronomy 6.4. Shemai, Shema Yisrael Eloheinu, Adonai, Ivad. In Hebrew, this is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So it is inescapable that there is one God, not three gods. Three gods is an incorrect statement. It is completely unbiblical. Having said that, it is also undeniable that the one God is also manifesting, moving, revealing Himself to mankind in At least three ways, if not more. These kind of mysteries are an interesting thing. Words defy our description of them. Battles have been fought over it, and yet they still don't quite manage to aid you in your understanding. Instead, they tend to be political lines, religious lines that are drawn on. I'd like to tell you that when you look in the mirror, you are seeing an image of God. Why do we say that? Because man was made in God's image. Now, you have fallen. There was a problem with your nature. But your very structure and your very design was like God. And when the Scripture says, let us make man in our image, how many men were made? One. One. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? And yet you have definable, discernible characteristics of your one person. Ham, Shem, and Japheth represent mankind. One mankind. And yet, all three boys that form one mankind have different characteristics. Shem means the name. Shem is the Semitic peoples in the Bible. Shem gave us all three major world religions. Shem is the God of the Jews' name. The, The name of Shem's God is the God of the Jews. When Jesus was born, he was born to the descendants of Shem. The land of Israel was populated with the descendants of Shem. This prophecy over mankind is very revealing. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. Canaanites later were called here the descendants of Ham. These people all settled in a certain region. They later spread out over all of the earth. But the area that most inhabited by Ham's descendants, Canaan's descendants, we're going to find out, is a plain between the Euphrates River and the Tigris River. If you want to find that on a map today, it's in Iraq. It's ancient Babylon. It's also Ur of the Chaldees. The Bible taught something. The Bible taught that although there were three parts of mankind, God had ordered man in a certain way. Chim corresponds to your spirit. This is the part of you who knows who God is. It's where His name dwells. When Keith was born again at a young age, God stamped His name on Keith. That name is is not removable. It's placed in there. That is His new identity. There is, though, something that we're looking at right now, and it is not Keith's spirit. You can't see it. God is spirit and cannot be seen. The visible image of Keith is found in his body. You can see it. You can touch it. You can relate to it. In the Bible, that body is symbolized by Ham or Canaan. And what this very first verse that we have read is teaching is that your body, your physical man, should be a slave of your spiritual man. In other words, what you know in your spirit to be right, you force your flesh to carry out. What do you tell a two-year-old that does not want to share? share? Share. Did they not know that they were supposed to share before that? Yes, they knew it. They simply didn't want to do it. So you are training them to make their flesh the slave of their spirit. This next part of the prophecy is an interesting one. It says, May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his slave. Of the three parts of mankind, one would be a slave. The flesh would be a slave to the spirit. And Japheth seems to represent your mind, will, and emotions, or what the Bible often calls a soul. What this means is that there are times in the very center of who you are, you know the good that you should do. Your flesh is saying, don't do it. And then the reasoning part of you enters into the equation to decide who you will obey. And the Bible is trying to teach us a central message. It's trying to teach us that God will deposit into your spirit a revelation. It is your job to align your mind, will, and emotions with that revelation and then force your flesh to carry it out. This is what proper order with God looks like. But you have to understand, this started with simply three boys and one mankind. What I'm trying to say is we can look at this and spiritualize it, and I just have. But they were also... People groups. And those people groups carried out these prophecies that were written about them. Ham, Shem, and Japheth are the fathers of mankind. When they unite in history, important things happen. A time that they unite, we will read about briefly, or maybe I'll just mention it. It's in Genesis 10. All of the sons of Noah are are available in Genesis 10 because they've not been dispersed. And you know what? They had one language. And they had a unified rebellion. You know what the next time in history you can find clearly all three sons of Noah and their languages coming together for one purpose? Above Jesus' head on the cross, in the language of Ham, Latin. This was the language of the Romans, a Hamite descendant. We had Jesus, uh, King of the Jews. We had it in Greek, Japheth's language. And we had it in Hebrew, Shem's language. All three sons of Noah, mankind acting as one, rejecting the Son. Rejecting the Father's rule at places like Tower of the Babel. Rejecting the Son's rule at places like the cross. And in these last days, we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I suspect that there will rise to be a day when all three sons of Noah, all mankind on the earth, will absolutely reject the Spirit's leading and we will get the king we so desired, the Antichrist. Look at Genesis 10, 8 for me. We will see if we can get down to the meat of this in the spiritual battle. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. This is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Iraq, Akkad, Kalnah, and Shinar. From there, I'm sorry, from that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Reboeth, Ir, uh, Kala, and Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. It's interesting. Nimrod is first called the mighty hunter, and then you see that he built things. And where he built them was between the Tigris and the Euphrates in a land today that looks like Iraq, but is ancient Babylon and also Ur of the Chaldees. Do you know his daddy was Cush, the scripture said, but who was Cush's daddy? Ham. The group of people that were typified by our flesh that should be the slave of the other two. It's a funny thing. In their actions, we find what happens with us so much. Did you know, in Hebrew, the word hunter is very similar to it in English. If we say Spencer went out and uh, he was hunting, well, if he's hunting ducks, you think of maybe he's in a blind with a shotgun. But if we're in the ancient world, he doesn't have a shotgun, does he? So if we say he's out deer hunting, we might think of him on a stand with uh, Judas 30 off 6, scoping out a deer, right? But in the ancient world, they didn't have that. So if you were a hunter in the ancient world, you know what else you were? By our terms, it would be called a trapper. You had to catch something. You had to ensnare it so that you could kill it and bring it home. Unless you had a bow and arrow, and it could be killed with a bow and arrow, to be a mighty hunter was to be a mighty trapper or ensnarer. The ancient Jewish sages say about Nimrod that he was the kind of man that ensnared the world. A descendant of Ham, somebody driven by his flesh. And how did he ensnare the world? He unified them with a purpose. But it was not God's purpose. In fact, it was the opposite of God's purpose. God said spread out all over the earth. Multiply. uh, (coughs) Subdue the earth. Nimrod said gather in one place. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us build a tower that reaches into the heavens so that we can exalt ourselves like God. Your flesh is always self-exalting. It is always working against God's purposes. It's why it simply cannot be in control of your life. It is working to ensnare you 100% of the time. Another time we see a descendant of Ham show up. In fact, the very next time Shinar is mentioned in the Bible. Look at Genesis 14. I'll move out of this history in a moment. I see glaze moving over your eyes. In Genesis 14, at this time, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, uh Kadar Lemor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom. And then we have another list of four kings. This guy, uh, Amraphel, who is the king of Shinar. People argue as to whether or not this is so, but I tell you, there's a growing number of scholars that look at this word, Amraphel. And by the time they... You have to understand this was written in a... uh, His name, because he's from Shinar, was in a Babylonian language. Then, because the Bible was written in the language of the Jews, the Hebrews, it went from Babylonian into the language of the Jews and now into English. And sometimes names change. Something like Miriam might become Mary. Something like Johanan might become John or Juan. Because of the differences in languages... His name is really interesting. History seems to record him as somebody whose name was Hammurabi. Do you all recognize that name? Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you take that Amraphel, and the very first part of it is Ami, right? Hammurabi. And the Raphael, this is how we get that. So it's not only similar when you go from language to language. The meaning, by the way, of Hammurabi is Ham the Great. There is no way to escape one fact. Whether or not they're the same man or not might be questionable, although most scholars tend to agree that that is true at this point. What is not questionable is that this man is a descendant of Ham and that he has made his home in Babylon, Shinar, or Ur of the Chaldees. All three cities are called that. And this entire 14th chapter of Genesis is about something. Does anybody know what it's about? It's about Lot being captured. A descendant of of Shem, Lot, a man in the Semitic people group who are supposed to receive the revelation, share it with Japheth, and Japheth and Shem put Ham to work. The same way that your spirit receives a revelation, your mind, will, and emotions team up with your spirit and force your body to carry it out, we have something very backward, something wrong here. We have the one who is supposed to receive the revelation being carried off into captivity by the one who was destined to be a slave. Of course, the Bible called him a king. Huh? We find something else about our fleshly nature in this. Not only is it something that ensnares, something that incites rebellion, it will capture your spirit and subdue it if you let it. How does something like this happen? Well, I'm just curious. Have you ever been in a worship service and had a godly idea? Something that was exciting, something that was powerful, but by the time you drove home, had lunch, sat around, reasoned it out, talked about it, you decided it couldn't be done? Shouldn't be done. We'll just wait for another week. We'll think about it some other time. And now, five years has gone by. And you vaguely remember it, but you've already decided that that's not really what you were supposed to do. This is exactly how the flesh masters the spirit it comes from disobedience. But what else is this 14th chapter of Genesis about? It's about a righteous man named Abram. And he went after that revelation. And he rescued it from the hands Of the enemy And he brought it back hmm? We need to be careful where we deposit The revelation God has given us Have you ever gone with a very cherished idea Something that was personal to you Something that you felt like was from the Lord And you, you shared it with somebody And uh, they were not very excited about it Maybe they rained on it some. Okay, Maybe they took out a fire extinguisher And hosed it down And then stepped on it, kicked it Scraped it off the sidewalk when they were done. What do you learn to do? You learn not to share those kind of things with those kind of people. Jesus don't cast pearls before swine. But let me ask you something. Don't we do the same thing when the Lord reveals something to us, but then we begin to consult the flesh, begin to consult the mind, will, and emotions, and right inside of us, we've got the same little triumvirate going on, huh? When the Lord says it, we simply need to say yes, actually, before He even says it, don't we?
1: Yeah.
0: It is not our job to reason out what God has said. It is not our job to do anything other than carry it out. What is Hammurabi known for in world history? His code. Eye for an eye. Cass caught that. That's good. Somebody else said his? His code. Code. People have made a big issue out of the fact that Hammurabi's code has some similarities to Moses' code, and it predates it by about 400 years. Rabbi is actually a contemporary of Abraham, not Moses. And so this was a real problem for people. How could that be? Well, the knowledge of God was poured into Noah. It was poured into Noah's sons. And this man is at the very least one generation away from the grandson of Nimrod, I'm sorry, of Ham, and may actually have been a contemporary, depending on how their lives went. So, was there a, a revelation of of godly things in the world, of course. Whatever was before the flood and survived through the boys was still there. You know what Hammurabi's code is completely devoid of? It's completely devoid of any knowledge of Yahweh God. There is a God mentioned. It's the sun God. And it's mentioned in the preamble as having revealed this law. Then, of course, in what could be considered a preface, Hammurabi takes full credit for it. says he created it, he authored it. He didn't want any glory to go to anybody but him. You know, it's an interesting thing. If you remove deity from law, if you have only a civil law, only a criminal law, then who's to really say what is right or wrong? I I want you to think about this for a moment. Oh, Hammurabi's Code, uh, it's amazing. It's one of the oldest works of law. If there is no love for a deity in it, then what is it really other than self-exaltation? You might even come up with things like, should we dine naked in San Francisco? You, you might have to have a city council meeting to decide whether or not you have to put down a towel before you sit down naked. That's actually ripped from our headlines of our newspapers in the last three weeks. Yeah. You, you might have to meet to decide whether or not in a nation that uh, was founded on a principle that said Congress shall make no law respecting religion, you might have to meet... To shut down anybody who is praying in a certain religion.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, how silly is that? Hammurabi's code is really something that all mankind has always been involved in. When you remove God from the equation, what do lost people say? Well, I've been good all my life. I've tried to do what seems right to me. They have little rules for themselves. Like, if Spencer does this to me, it's okay for me to do this back. It's always devoid of a responsibility to God, and it is what seems best to us. So it's an interesting thing. In Ham, what we see is we see a rebellious son who dishonored the father. In Nimrod, what we see is a rebellious power who ensnared men. And in Hammurabi, what we see is the self-exaltation of man, man's self-governance. A government that is not based on and does not include God in any way. Let me ask you, does that sound like the spirit of Ham as anywhere in the world today? What is most sad is that it can be readily found in the church. Turn with me to Genesis 11. I want to tell you what I feel like the Lord told me. This is... uh, what I've given you up to this point is so that you will understand what I'm telling you right now. Is that fair enough? Yeah. This is one of those moments in the Bible where a whole chapter goes by and then the author says, therefore. <laughs> uh, what the therefore is here for. <laughs> sounds like a lawyer, doesn't it? What the therefore is here for. I wanted you to understand who Ham was, where his people were from, and what they produced so that you would understand this statement. Genesis 11, let's start in 31. Terah took his son Abraham, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans, that is right in the center of the plain of Shinar, it's next to Babylon, to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country. Leave your people. And leave your father's household and go to the land I will show you. The message of the Spirit today is the same as the message in 2000 B.C. It is you must leave your father's country. Where was his father's country? It was the plain of Shinar. It was the site of rebellion. The site of ensnaring. It was the site of fleshly, self-governing rule. What better way to prove that you have left the plain of Shinar, that place of rebellion, self-government, and fleshly rule, what better way to prove it than to not even know where you are going? Mm-hmm. See, if you have to go somewhere that you don't know, where's reason involved in this? Where's the flesh's voice in this? If you don't even know where you're going, you simply have to go. You might even say that's unreasonable. Huh? And yet, this is where the faith of Abraham begins. And I'm going to tell you the truth. It's where the faith of Yeshua begins. It's where the faith that is the authentic Bible faith begins. When you abandon your flesh's voice, you abandon reason and you simply say, yes. The first step is always like that, and yet he's given us many reasons to trust him. I like the Jason Upton song says, what reason did he ever give you to doubt him? You're here. You're breathing. Did you get that on your own? Or did someone else give it to you? He's given you life. What makes you think he's in a hurry to end it? The call of the people of God has always been, leave your father's country. We could turn to Matthew. We could also turn to Mark. Then we could turn to Luke. We could also turn to John. And you'll find examples in every case of Jesus looking at someone and saying, come and follow me. No explanation. No lengthy committee meeting. No reasoning over it. No counting of the resources to see what's going to happen if you do it. What if we had that kind of trust? There is no other way into the kingdom, friends. None. Because all of the people of faith have received the same message. Leave, follow, leave, follow, leave, follow. We don't get a chance to say, but why? Did you know, Lord, that the hanging gardens of Babylon are a wonder of the world? Think of all the good I could do here. Do you know, Lord, that uh, the plain of Shinar is well watered? Do you know, Lord, what's happening here? We don't get a chance to do that. I was told right before this service started on the phone, you know, Eric, we're not perfect. You're told to aim for it. What does that really mean? When we look at each other and say, well, nobody's perfect, Claire. What do we say? I'm saying, Claire, let's you and I go ahead and have an agreement. I'm not going to show that you're not perfect and you won't show that I'm not perfect. We'll just say we're not perfect and then we can talk about sin, but nobody's actually going to call it out. Isn't that an agreement to compromise? We're both going to live in Ur of Chaldees. And we're just going to say we had to live somewhere. An old Baptist guy on the first job I had and said, Hey, we got to live in this flesh, don't we? You <laughs> did. It's my slave. You can live there all you want. I'm going to live in my spirit. Cause this flesh is going to perish. That was before I lost my hair <laughs> and my physique.
1: Still got my teeth, Matthew. <laughs>
0: Actually, they're fake, too. Made out of the same stuff toilet is. How about that? How Of course. is a bit of a cruel, cruel joke, Charlie. I don't know what to say. I want to tell you that the same message has gone out to the people of God always. It is that you have to leave Ur of the Chaldees. The idea that the flesh has is a—it sets in motion the idea of a society that's free of God and that's full of self. Now it doesn't matter what kind of deities you worship, if you get to pick them. Like uh, my pastor told me one time about when he was lost—he was in the Navy—and they said, "What should we put on your dog tags?" He'd grown up assemblies of God, and they were always picked on. So he said, oh, "I could go. No, I'm not Catholic. I have to pick man. Um, I'm Baptist." Why did you choose Baptist? Now, I was Baptist when he told me this. He said, they were the only people I knew that were never persecuted. (laughs) If you get to pick, if you get to pick, how is that in any form other than self-exaltation? The reason I tell you this is because Joshua 24 says that Terah, Abraham's father, was an idolater. Well, of course he was. He lived in Ur of the Chaldees, the land of Hammurabi's code, where everybody got to govern themselves. And when we govern ourselves, we like to explain our actions. We just blame it on the deity. Do you know what Abraham's father, Terah, in in Jewish history, uh, what happened the night before they left? The night before they left, they went into, uh, Abraham goes into the shrine room, right? This is where the family gods are all kept. And I mean, mind you, you need a god for fertility. Right, because I mean, you know why? Yeah, we we need a we need a god of agriculture. What else might we need a god of? Well, today we would need one of prosperity, right? Because that's what's being preached everywhere else. Health,
1: any other? A god of
0: happiness? You you picture all the little wooden statues you want. So so uh, Abraham walks in and, and he has uh, the Jewish equivalent of a machete. It was really more like a, a, a axe. But in any case, he cuts them all up. Except one. He leaves the one, and he puts in his hand the little machete. So then he sneaks back out of his father's idol room. Yeah. Dad wakes up the next morning to go bask in his self-exaltation. I meant his worship of his deities. And he sees that they've all been toppled over and cut up. And Jewish tradition says his dad comes to Abram and says, What happened here? The rest of it I think is quite obvious what happened here. <laughs> All the gods are dead except the one that's got a machete in his hand. (laughs) Abram, put Fulton with me. Who did that? What do you mean who did it? He did it. (laughs) He's just a wood statue. Then why do you worship him, Dad? Jewish tradition says that happened. I don't know whether it did or not, but we see it happen every day. How many people do you know that in the name of some religious principle are doing things that really benefit themselves? In fact, when we get right down to it, hey, anybody give to the police associations in here? You got those little stickers on your car?
1: <laughs>
0: okay, so nobody in here does that. If they didn't give you the little sticker to put on the window, oh. would you still give uh-huh. See, this is like that license plate I saw in 1993. It's on a Jaguar in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It said, I tied. Uh. Ooh. Good for you. You got your reward.
1: Mm-hmm. See,
0: so many things that are done, the actual motive for doing them is something that is selfish, even church attendance. Church attendance is often little more than to assuage your own personal guilt so you feel like a good person. <coughs> That's not why we go to church, friends. We go to church so that we can hear the voice of God say, Leave her of the Chaldees. Don't reason it out, don't submit it to the committee for approval. Do it because I said so. And you thought you did it last week, but I'm going to show you a new area this week. Amen. And in your journey with me, you will learn to trust me. That's what it's about. Amen. But when you go into the Christian bookstore today, I would submit to you that that's not what you see the most of. What I actually saw that Justin Bieber has a Christian book out in... Uh, yeah, look. I get that wrong? That's not how you say his name? Bieber? Bieber beaver whatever the point is is anybody anybody that could sell a book can be put there I remember when Deion Sanders had life size posters and that didn't last long you guys before me remember when Bob Dylan did yeah how about that see we have set up for ourselves Hammurabi's code Cam the Great's code Whatever appeals to our flesh, that's what we will call right. The Bible is largely the story of being called out of that. Leave its traps. Leave its rebellion. Leave its law of self-worship. Shem must come out from under hand. We're like Lot. We've been taken captive and we don't know it. God said to Abraham, leave. Jesus said to his disciples, leave and come follow me. I believe that the Spirit of the Living God is saying, separate yourselves. I believe that. Now, there are a lot of ways to separate yourselves. You could go find a cave. Nolan, you could suddenly become Archbishop, whatever.
1: You could reverence
0: Nolan for not speaking for two whole years. Right? How holy. And go hide in a cave. He's separate. I believe that what John John 17, Jesus' prayer, teaches is not that we leave the world, but that we're set apart in the world, protected from the evil. You know how you be protected from the evil one? No part of you belongs to him. When you are doing only what God has deposited in your spirit, no part of you is liable for destruction. No part of you is in jeopardy. The Lord God had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. (laughs) The land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Lord, make me a nation and then I'll go. Lord, bless me and then I will go. That's not the way it works. You step out and you trust Him." I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. I love verse 4. So Abraham left as the Lord had told him. What if that was the only commentary on Abraham's life? If you know about God's nature, if you know who He is, you don't need to know the rest of the story. You need to know that God, if He said it, it needed to be obeyed and Abraham obeyed Him and that would be enough. The fact that you find out that his descendants are all over the planet today and gave you the book that you hold in your hand now, that is a blessing. These are reasons to trust him. But he doesn't owe you that, does he? If he says leave, we simply are supposed to leave. Yeah. I'd like to talk to you about five witnesses. Is that okay? Yeah. I ask for the Hebrew names of books because wouldn't you think that if we're going to study the Hebrew Bible... We would know the Hebrew names for the books of the Bible, at least the first few. Well, amen. Brandon got bare sheets. That was good. He's a bold young man, about to get married, setting off in life, doing amazing things. But the rest of us in here in a church with Hebrew written on our pulpit, with uh, rife with Jewish roots teachings, a library full of Jewish roots books, and all the rest were hesitant. You know what's interesting about that? When I say them, you're going to remember them. When I say them, you're, you're going to recognize them again. But somehow or another, we missed the message because our culture was not designed by God. Theirs was. You realize that if you lived in ancient Israel, your constitution was the word of God? That meant that whether you were particularly godly or not, everywhere you looked, you saw godly principles. You couldn't help it. Is that true in America? No. no. This is why God chose one nation to become the priestly nation. Some have criticized them, called them a super race. They're a supernatural race. And you're called to be grafted in with them and become one new man. The Jew is not any better than you. He's simply chosen. He's chosen. What are you supposed to be? Chosen. Where would you get an idea like that? Well, the first book of the Bible, Bereshit, is translated in the beginning. You might write that under five witnesses. Our first witness comes from the very beginning. It's Bereshit. From the beginning of everything that ever is, ever was, we have a book. The second book of the Bible, Exodus, is called Shemoth in Hebrew. Shemoth is translated, these are the names. What this is a witness to you is that from the very beginning of creation, before that there was a world, before anything existed as you know it, the God of the universe knew the name. He knew your name. The third book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. Now we're in Leviticus in the English Bible. Of course, if it was a Hebrew Bible, it would be the Yigra it means he called it's almost like God is trying to say a sentence with the first few books oh wow how to spell it well you need to know Hebrew am I? <laughs> I think you would be safe writing down V-A-Y-I-K-R-A it's not Viagra it's Viikra <laughs> so in the beginning these are the names Viikra he called It wasn't enough that God knew your name, Andrew. It wasn't enough that before everything He purposed you, He also called. Who in here has answered that call? The first few books of the Bible begin to tell us that God intended to have a people for Himself. And that He knew their names and that He would call to them. These are witnesses from ancient times. And what does He call he says, leave her of the Chaldees. Leave the reign of the flesh. I have got something for you. Today we can't say that without finishing the sentence, and it's better. Right? If God asks you to do it, Cody, it's going to turn out for you better. You know, that's not Christianity. It very well may turn out better. It also may be that he's drawn and quartered. I mentioned Andrew earlier. Did you know that the <coughs> apostle Andrew was supposed to have been killed in India? Yeah, they tore his arms and legs off. So is it always going to turn out better? Was that incumbent upon God to offer Abraham a better deal? Abraham, if you want to leave, this is what I have to offer you, but in the end, it's up to you. That sounds more like how Maravi's code to me. But a law that is based on the love of the divine, the deity, says I'll do it because I love you, Lord, whether it's good for me or not, I trust you. It just so happens that it is good for you. Where did we stop? We stopped on number three, Aïkra. Here comes yours, Brandon, number four, Bemidbar. Bemidbar is in the desert. Where did God find you? He found us the same place He found Israel, the same place that He called His people out of in 516 B.C., The same place he's still calling them out of today, whether literally or figuratively. In the desert, this symbolizes sin, slavery, Egypt, Ham's rule. Just so happens that Egypt, also descendants of Ham. Isn't that funny? All the people of God called in the Bible are being called out from under Hamitic rule. Even you. Last one, fifth book, fifth witness, Devereen. These are the words. Let's put that together while you're writing. In the beginning, these are the names He called. In the desert, these are the words. He begins to tell you, I knew you from the beginning. I named you. I have called you. I knew where you were when I called you, and I am saying, come out. This is my word. The message has never changed. It's been exactly the same since Nimrod was defying it at the Tower of Babel. It's been the same since Hammurabi captured Lot. It's been the same since Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. And it's been the same since Jesus, the living Christ, has called you out of the slavery of the world. You know what has changed? We've redefined the faith. The faith used to be based on, he said go, so I'm going. Don't know where I'm going, doesn't matter to me. Now we've said, you only go if it is your best life now. Every day needs to be like a Friday. You need to be rich, you need to be happy, you need to be prosperous. This is what he wants for you. You need to be completely self-absorbed. This is what he wants for you. Friends, that's what you're supposed to be leaving, not what you're supposed to be running to. I want to tell you, if you're on the right road but you're headed the wrong direction, there could be a few bumps there because the Lord loves you and tries to turn you around. Wouldn't it be great if you got a chance to listen to and obey preaching? Then you might not have to have those bumps in the road. The Lord's not punishing us, friends. He loves us. He loves us. You know he was faithful on Abraham's journey to strip away from everything that Abraham put in the way that shouldn't have been there? He had to send Ishmael away because Ishmael was not part of the plan. He had to send Hagar away because Hagar was not part of the plan. had to rescue his wife from a potentate because that was not part of the plan. But all of those things caused Abraham a lot of heartache, didn't they? I would say that there are five witnesses. What is five the number of in the Bible? Grace. Grace. I would say the five witnesses are the first five books of the Bible for you. They witness to the same thing I'm telling you. The Lord has called you out of self-government, self-rule, the idea that your flesh knows what is best. That was the problem that caused man to move from the Garden of Eden where the name of God dwelt, to banishment outside of it, always moving eastward, further away from the Garden. You know what is east of the Garden of Eden? Yeah, you guessed it. Playing with Chanel. Turn with me to Genesis 22. If you were coming out of Ur of the Chaldees and all you had ever seen was the way that they worshipped, all you had ever seen was their wooden gods, all you ever knew was pagan idolatry, then it might not seem strange to you when the deity said something to you like this. Are you in Genesis 22? Yes. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. It wouldn't seem strange to you because growing up in Ur of the Chaldees, you would have seen many people sacrifice their sons. Of course, it would have been on the altar to themselves. How do they sacrifice their sons? By not doing what is in the sons' best. Actually, they, they burn their children in the fire to Molech at times. But even if they did not literally go out and kill them, they didn't have their children's best interest in mind. They had a kind of self-governing code that said, my responsibility is to do this, this, and this for them, and hopefully they'll turn out all right. You don't hear that today in the church, do you? I don't know what happened to so-and-so. I raised him right. Really? that what the Bible says? Is that how the Bible teaches it? When I ask parents, and I'm a parent, when I ask them, don't pray in the Holy Ghost in your heart? You pray with your child each night? Did you teach him the Word? Did y'all sit down together and you share the Word with him? Well, I brought him to church. That's not what I asked you. Do you know what his biggest struggles are? And are you praying that God will deliver him through them with him, not for him somewhere else, with him? Does he see that? Well, I. you find out that what passes for raising godly children today is, I brought them to church. That's, that's like saying, you know, uh, I brought them home from the hospital. Good for you. Good for you. And then what kind of church did you bring them to? Well, for the first 20 years, one that had a form of godliness but denied its power. But I raised him in a godly home. We're still living in Ham and we don't even know it. It's all around us, all over the place, but we've accepted it as worship of the one true God. And God is saying, come out. Do you believe we can do better than that? I believe we can do better than that. Are you all still in Genesis 22? Notice something. First time the word love is mentioned in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? Then God said, "Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love." One of the reasons that God knew that Abraham loved Isaac is God gave Isaac to Abraham. He gave him to him, and God had taught Abraham how to love. Do you know how Abraham learned to love God? Because when he was in error of the Chaldees, a loving God said, "Come out." He knew his name, and he called him just like you. Our Heavenly Father has proven His love to us by calling us out. Romans 5.8 says that Jesus demonstrated, or God demonstrated His love to us in that while you were still sinners, He died for you. He was calling you out even when you were in or of the Chaldees or in the Egyptian slavery. And this is the demonstration of love. What do we mean when we say Love. I had a warm, fuzzy feeling. Well, good for you. Did you leave them in slavery? See, righteousness, as Mike taught us, is doing what we know is right, not having a warm, fuzzy feeling. See, when God demonstrated to Abraham love, Abraham turned then and demonstrated it to Isaac. So this was a difficult thing that God asked. And it was a test. It probably didn't seem strange to him. Abraham may even have been waiting for the other foot to drop, like, Lord, you are so good. This is so amazing. You have done so many things. But he might have been waiting for the crash at some point. You ever have a good time period? Your spiritual walk seems a little bit free of battle, seems like you're just growing and all, and you're almost cringing because you know it's not supposed to be this easy? At some point, he must have been thinking, what's going to be required? Did God require Abraham to kill his son? Did he? Y'all can answer me. Some say yes, some say no. Did Isaac die? No. No. Wanted to see that the man trusted him no matter what he asked. Does that defy reason? Yeah. In the end, what did God have in mind? God had in mind, to use this as an example, Abraham, I would never ask this of you. I'm going to demonstrate it. In fact, Abraham named that very mountain Yahweh Yireh. I'm sorry, named, gave a name of God at that time, Yahweh Yireh. He said, The Lord my provider. He said, On this mountain he will provide. That mountain range is called Moriah, and that's where Jesus was killed. God did provide his son. What God never asked of us, he does himself. You know what one thing he asked of us? To obey him without question. How are we doing with that, church? We'll ban him without question. I'd like to give you five examples in the Bible. So your first five were five witnesses. Your next five are five examples. <coughs> I asked Wednesday night, how many of you have read a Christian book this year? Every hand in the building went up. I asked how many people have read the book of Leviticus this year? Nobody's hand went up. I, as a pastor, I'm going okay to tell you that hurt a little bit. It hurt a little bit because as good as whatever Christian book you're reading might be, and probably most of them are not, but as good as it might be, you know what it's not? It doesn't have the power to transform your life. It doesn't have the power to redeem your soul. It doesn't have the power to bring light into your darkness. God's Word does not need to be proven and has already been proven, but we will spend money on anything else without reading it. I'm fine with doing both. Why do you think our kids grow up with the idea that the Old Testament is boring? And if the Old Testament is not boring, it's good. Why do you think they grow up with the idea that Leviticus is boring? Or as one man told me, Numbers is just a book of numbers. I said, you obviously didn't get past the title. Why do you think they grow up with the idea that it's boring? Could it be that they've never seen their parents enjoy it? Is it just that they didn't see their parents or is it that their parents actually never learned to enjoy it? Y'all in Leviticus? Beigra? What if I gave you five chapters of Leviticus that contained five different offerings and all five offerings speak emphatically of Jesus and call a lost man into God's presence? Would that be an exciting thing? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been there since Moses wrote it in the 14th or 15th century B.C. It's been there that long. It may be the first time you've heard it today, but it's been there that long. What else is there that you've not yet discovered? You're in the first chapter of Leviticus? Let's read the first and second verse. From the first verse, we get the name. The Lord called the Ebra to Moses and spoke to him in the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone brings you an offering, brings an offering to the Lord. Bring as your offering an animal from either the the herd or the flock. To start with, this word offering, which it's not one of your five. You've heard it. It's a New Testament word that you may not have ever known what it meant. It's korban. Korban is a Hebrew word that means... To bring near. Now that may not sound revolutionary at all to you, but I want you to imagine that you lived in Ur of the Chaldees. You were in Abraham's father, Terah's shrine room. What did it mean to go near those gods? They weren't gods at all, were they? They were little wooden statues. The idea that you really could reach deity, that was pretty foreign from the ancient world. I mean, man had gotten thrown out of a garden where the presence of the deity was and all he had done since then was create for himself his own deities and most of all, himself. But the beginning of the book of Leviticus says when you bring an offering, Korban, near to God. Come on. Angie, do you remember when you fell in love with Darren? Is she she getting excited out there? (laughs) Did you get a little flutter in your chest when you knew an important moment was coming like you might pop a question? How would you feel if you knew that for the first time in human history you were going to be brought near to God? Would your heart flutter? Would you be filled with excitement? If you thought the book of Leviticus was some silly B-grade slasher film put to ancient text... Is because we haven't understood it. The book of Leviticus is about the God of Shem, the God of Abraham, calling to the people, saying, "You can come near to me. Korban is me." The first offering mentioned in the book of Leviticus is in the third verse. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, this word "burnt offering" means olah. In Hebrew, olah has to do with stairs that ascend. You might be getting the idea here. If you're going to bring an offering near to me, the first kind that you might bring will ascend into my presence as it's burned up. What an amazing thing. You had a way to email God. (laughs) And in emailing Him, you would suddenly be closer to Him. You would be in communication with Him. If you lived in Urb and Chaldees, you had tried to build towers but couldn't get close to it. And now you mean to say all I have to do is come and do this and I could be closer to you? See, New Testament scholars have really messed this up. We've said they could come close, but only so close. Well, of course, Jesus is the ultimate, of course, he's the fulfillment. Does that mean that this was not amazing? See, we've juxtaposed the two systems so long that we've made one devilish and the other righteous. And they're both righteous. In fact, Jesus is the law. He's the living, breathing, walking law. What Ola did, Jesus did. You're going to find out what all five sacrifices do, Jesus did. And he did them once for all. But this was still to a called group of people. And they found a way they could come close to God. The first one was through Ola, a burnt offering, a way to ascend into His presence. Look at the second chapter for your second one. When someone brings a grain offering to the Lord, this grain offering is a mincha, M-I-N-C-H-A-H, mincha. Mincha is very special. Every god in the ancient world required bloodletting of some kind. Usually, the more it hurt, the more they said that they would honor you. So you were sure that if you just cut yourself enough, your god would hear you. Do you remember Elijah contending with the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth and they cut themselves? Do you remember the detestable god of the Moabites required Molech? He required their children in the fire. This is because if God was pleased with this small, hurtful sacrifice, piercing, then surely He'd be pleased with this giant cutting sacrifice. And if He was pleased with that, surely He'd be pleased if I gave Him my child. This was the way the pagans thought. Of course, our God went exactly the opposite. He said, no, if somebody's going to give the most, if somebody's going to give a child, it'd be me. He said, no, here with menchah he said, you can come near me. You can korban. A mensah is specifically a bloodless offering. Brain. He said, I want you to bring me something that my priest can eat in my presence and y'all can all enjoy it. It won't require any shedding. That was revolutionary for its day. It was a way of saying, Lord, I love you. And here is tribute. Not tribute because you've conquered me in war. Tribute because you are the ultimate. And you don't require me to shed my blood. So I wanted to give something back. You know what that might be the equivalent of New Testament church? I hate those words, but I'm trying to say something that you'll understand. Tithing. Not shedding blood, it's like tribute. You weren't conquered in war. You simply say, "Lord, I trust you. I love you, and I wanted to give something back." Nitzah. Turn with me to chapter three. In the third chapter and first verse, isn't it nice how that's happened? In the third chapter and first verse, if someone's offering is a fellowship offering, a fellowship offering in Hebrew is a shilim. Shilim means thanksgiving. Peace, fellowship offering. Do you mean to tell me that the God of the Jews will let me come near to Him and have peace, a harmony, a right ordering? Do you mean that the God of the Jews will let me come near Him and have fellowship? God, it sounds almost like He was willing to be a friend. See, that's not a New Testament revelation. Abraham was a friend of who? God, 2,000 years before the cross. Moses spoke to God like one man speaks to another face to face, 2,000 years before the cross. We have five witnesses in the five books. We have five examples in these five offerings that were steadily telling us. And you know what? We don't even read them. In fact, a lot of Bible societies, when they hand out Bibles, don't even include it. Can you imagine that? We've redacted God's Word. We'll tell you what, we'll give you a New Testament because we like eschatology, we'll throw in Daniel. And everybody loves the Psalms, we'll put that in there, but nothing else is necessary. How insulting is that? It's amazing what happens when you stray really, 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 really far from your roots. Could you imagine the Apostle Paul saying, No, just give them the 27 books, most of which I wrote. And leave out those ones Moses wrote. Can you imagine that? I I simply can't imagine. Where do you think that the fourth offering is found? In the fourth chapter. Isn't it nice how God did this for us? The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites when anyone sins, they do that unintentionally though. And does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands. If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering. Isn't it interesting we get all the way to the fourth offering before we're even dealing with man's sin? What were the first ones about? Well, when you get right down to it, the first ones were about drawing near to God. And now that we're near, we found out. There's a problem, and it's not that God's far from us. It's that we're far from Him. We have sin, and it has caused us to miss the mark He was drawing us to. This offering is called a chata, C-H-A-T-A. And surprisingly, it means sin. <laughs> but think about what this means. Did you ever do anything wrong? Ever? <laughs> well, sometimes. Do you make a mistake here the... All right, come here. <laughs> Occasionally, somewhere we're not saying where that he made a mistake. <clears throat> For the next, I don't know how old are you? Eleven. 11. If you're an average person, then you're going to get sixty-seven more years, right? I want you to carry the weight of that book.
1: Is it getting heavy?
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what if along the way you got some more? He's getting heavier would it feel good if one day somebody said we can do something about that, we never have to carry that again? Mm-hmm. Can you imagine what that was like? To have to carry your sin every day, knowing that no matter what you did, you can't undo it? Mm-hmm. And then God said, no, 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 listen. If you want to come near me, we can deal with tata. We can deal with your sin. Here's how to do it. Now, it's almost like he's saying, come out of Ur of the Chaldees, come out of Ham's Ruling over your life his dominion And you said but But wait I don't know how to get to you And he said no I'll show you how to ascend to me It's almost like You said but wait I I don't want to be hurt And he said it won't require your blood He said but I don't know You and I have never been quite on the same page And he said it's okay I'll put us in shalem Peace with each other He said but wait I have this sin problem He said I will deal with your sin Do this Does that sound like a good God to you? Amen. You know, sin is one thing. And living with the consequences is another. Where do you think we'll find the fifth one? In the fifth chapter. Isn't that amazing? In five books we can find the plan of God. In the first five chapters of the book of Leviticus we can find the plan of God. Jesus is all over it. And you know what? We don't read it. (laughs) But... I don't want to ask how many have got the prayer of Jabez in their house. What made that appeal to us? Could it be that we live under Hamitic rule and we don't even know it? In the fifth chapter, maybe the best place to look then would be verse five. When anyone is guilty in any way of these things, he must confess. It's one thing to sin. Have you ever sinned and not felt guilty? Well, I did. When I was lost, I was good at it, right? Because uh, let's just say Spencer looked at me wrong, right? At least that's what I'm going to go home and tell mom and dad. And so Spencer and I got in a fight. But when mom and dad are saying, you know, is this really, you know, is this how you're going to live your life, son? Right? You're going to be thrown out of school. You're going to lose your job. You remember saying this stuff, mom? (laughs) You What did I do? I didn't have a choice. Spencer looked at me wrong, right? Kamarabi's code. I had my own rules. About how that works. So you know what I'm not? I'm not feeling guilty. Yeah, you find it everywhere. Even in the church. We've assuaged our own guilt because we've not done anything wrong in our own eyes. Of course, in God's eyes, as he draws you nearer and nearer and nearer, listen to the revelation. Your revelation of sin came before your revelation of guilt. When you realize how badly you've missed the mark all of the sudden, God says, as a final step, we'll deal with your asham. A-S-H-A-M. We will deal with your guilt. You want to come near me? I will show you how to deal with guilt. Now, I'll tell you, the the dealing with the guilt was a difficult thing. You had to bring a, a female lamb to the Lord as an offering. Anybody in here got a lamb? Yeah, I didn't either. I don't have one. You know, this is one of the only offerings that God said, I want you to be free from your guilt so badly that even if you don't have a lamb, I'll take two dollars. That was the cheapest offering that you could find. It's like saying, to deal with your sin, Tara, it's going to be $1,000. You start going through your purse and like, I guess I'm just going to have to keep my guilt then. God said... What do you have? I have two pennies. I'll take those. He wanted you free from your guilt. Our God is calling us out. The first five books of the Bible tell the story. The first five chapters of Leviticus where he called you is telling you how to get near to him and what he will do to help you get near to him. Our message was 5-5. Five, five. There was one more 5? Yes. I never could drive 65. That's an old song, is it, cats? They don't even know it, do they? Y'all don't know I can't drive
1: 55?
0: I can't believe there's nobody that knows that. I'd like to talk to you about this last one. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. I can't believe they don't know that song. You don't know that song? I can't yeah. drive fifty-five. Yeah. <laughs> you say <said> me? <it. laughs> wow. Jim, that's a hair man saying a thing. Uh, all right. He does. Oh, uh, Mario does Yeah, me either. <laughs> who does? Mario. Mario, you remember? <laughs> okay, so I didn't... Look y'all. Hi, yes. Hi. 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 I personally was never into that kind of music. Yeah. I just fell in love with a woman who was. <laughs> <laughs> Their hair looked just like hers. <laughs> in Ephesians 4, in Ephesians 4, look at verse 11. Now, let's look at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given. Five. Five is, what is the number of five? Grace. grace. There were five books, grace. There were five sacrifices in the book of Leviticus, grace. There's one more measure of grace that we're going to speak about today. To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. I don't have time to teach you about this, but you can find all five sacrifices in those verses. If you just look, we have ascension in those verses. We have harmony with God in those verses. We have dealing with sin in those verses. In those verses, we have all five sacrifices. But remember, if you came out of Ur of the Chaldees, one of the problems you would have is, Lord, how do I pour bond? How do I get next to you? Jesus did what those sacrifices were designed to do. He descended to where you were. He grabbed hold of you and ascended with you with him to the Father. This is why Ephesians says we're seated in the heavens with him. You've been pour brought near. It was he who gave some to be apostles. Some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. We had five witnesses. We had five examples. And the Bible gives us five preparers help you on your journey out of Ur of the Chaldees and into the name. He gives you apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Don't settle for anything less. Don't carve out three or four of the offices simply because you don't see them. Do you think maybe the reason our nation is unfathered is because there have been no spiritual father figures, no apostles. Maybe the reason our nation has been so uncorrected is because our churches are nonprofit organizations. Nobody to point out sin. Uncorrected. Who in your life can point their long finger at you and say, I know by the Spirit of God you are in sin? I'm not doing anything. Exactly. That's what sin is. The good you know to do and are not doing. For us, righteous living has become we don't do what the world does. That's righteousness. Then what separates you from a Mormon other than the presidency? What separates you from a Jehovah's Witness? What separates you from Hammurabi's Code or any other moral law if your righteousness is defined by not doing what the world does how is that righteousness at all I would say righteousness is when you are doing what God has told you to do by that standard who in your life can point at you and say you're not doing what God called you to do The churches are unfathered; they're uncorrected, and so they are unfruitful. We can amass great numbers of people, but no depth in our disciples, and our disciples do not become teachers. They do not become fivefold ministry, and even when we start our own churches, they end up extensive family gravestones. And the reason that they do is because we're unfruitful. We don't know what it is to multiply. You know when you multiply? It's when you watch a video like that one that you saw today and you don't reason it. You don't consider how much money you do or don't have. You stop counting all of your costs and you simply say yes. And you trust that the Lord will give you what you need for the journey because He called you to go. That's not how we make our decisions, though, is it? Because we haven't left Earth, the Chaldees. You know what? If God doesn't want you to go do something He's told you to do, He'll stop you. I almost got on a ship that had a three and a half year journey ahead of it, and I had just married Jennifer two months earlier. He stopped me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: At least my heart was in the right direction. Has He had to stop you recently? Or is He still trying to get you started? in any direction because we're unfruitful we're unhealed the pastors are supposed to bring healing and we're unhealed because they keep telling us what we want to hear how many of you go to the doctor so the doctor will tell you what you want to hear you have the spine of a 102 year old man and you're 26 years old but I'm going to tell you you're perfectly healthy would we accept that? Would you find a new doctor you are paying him for his subjective, honest, arbitrary opinion. <coughs> you don't pay this pastor, but if you did, what would you pay him for? Mm-hmm. <laughs> most of the time, most of the time, when somebody leaves angry from our church that simply left because somebody, if not me, in here told them the truth, most of the time, which begs the question what were you here for if you weren't here for that Mm -hmm. our churches are unfathered uncorrected unfruitful unhealed maybe the last one is a result of all of those we're untaught we say that we know but we've accepted Bible light what do I mean by Bible light well who's read through the Bible this year the whole Bible good for you. Is that Bible light? No. One person in the church of a hundred finished the Bible this year. I'm not going to ask you how many people finished the Harry Potter series this year. Or maybe you enlightened folks, some of the C.S. Lewis books this year. Or how many of you read three bestsellers from the Christian list? This year, we've accepted Bible light, friends. I believe that God has given us five books of grace. He's given us five sacrifices as examples of grace. But most of all, He's given us a church structure with five different entities in it to help us along the way. You know what nobody can do for you, though? Make you leave Earth to God but Matthew, you come up here. We're going to close in song. I need to read you something else. But what I'm hoping that you'll contemplate is throwing off Ham's rule. Embracing the kingdom by loving His word. Drawing near to Him and dealing with your sin. Devoting yourself to either preparation or work, but you cannot do neither and think that you belong to Him. I can live with the fact that you're preparing to work. And I can live with the fact that you're working. But we cannot live with the fact that you do need it. Considering all of your preparation, how much time have you already got? Anybody in here been a Christian more than three years? That's more than the apostles got with Jesus and they changed the world. Anybody more than five? More than ten? You see what I'm getting at, friends? While we prepare, what happens to them?
1: Hmm?
0: While we go and prepare, what happens to them? You might make a decent argument for some on-the-job training. Hmm? Maybe as you go and do, the Word will come alive to you. Maybe it will suddenly find new meaning because you have found new applications. Is that a convicting word? Is it a hard word? Is it an untruthful word? Did I say something you think is wrong? Well, if nobody's going to denounce me as a liar and you're going to call it the truth, then the best question we could ask is what are you going to do I'm doing my part right now, bringing it up. I hadn't stopped taking phone calls, had our share of adversity, but we're not quitting. Do you remember what Matthew asked you during worship? He asked you to think of one thing. No bold person will tell me what he asked you to think of. One One person. We're so used to coming in and doing church. We're so used to sitting, soaking, and leaving that we have a hard time an hour and a half later remembering that we've already made a commitment to think of one person we could leave here today and to go minister to. Some might call that gospel hardened. So we're going to worship and we'll give you a chance to revisit that. If you were called out of her of the Chaldees, who's going with you on the journey? Who do you know that's still in the furnace of Egypt slavery? Who do you know that's been deceived by Nimrod's rebellion and is sitting there making up Hammurabi's word for himself? Who needs to follow your king? And what can you do about it? Well, I don't have what I need, Lord. I think in those five sacrifices, we find out he gives you whatever you need. Lord, I haven't been prepared. There's a five-fold ministry that is preparing you to the extent that you'll receive it. We need to multiply, friend. We need to accept fathering. We need to accept healing. We need to accept teaching. It's the cure for what ails us. Now stand to your feet.